Welcome to Being Honest with My Ex. My ex is Peter C. Haywood. My ex is SJ, better known as Honor Eastley. We were engaged for two years and, and then, then we, we broke, broke up. up and then we stopped talking to each other for a year and now we do a podcast together. Would you have a baby with me? If I can get you to cry next podcast, we'll have a hat trick. <laughs> you don't know this, but I have a very vivid image of what your penis looks like. What? <laughs> if I met you now, I do not think that I would go out with you. Oh my God. I think if I met you now, I'd, I'd fall more in love with you than I did the first time. Hey guys, this is just a quick note before we start to say that this is a two-part episode. This is part one. We're talking about social enterprise this week. It's a conversation that you will hear that I am embarrassed about. And even listening back on this one, mm, I don't know, I sound way more cavalier than I usually would and it's awkward to be, to listen. But that's kind of how it goes doing this kind of podcast. The other thing I want to mention is that Peter C. Hayward has just launched his new Kickstarter. I think they're like one or two days in and they've already reached their goal. It's going really well. But if you really want to support Peter's projects, just pledging a dollar is actually really, really helpful. You can find it at draculasfeast.com or there's a link in the show notes that you can have a look at. As always, thanks for listening and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. See you next time. So I've been having this idea lately and I, well, I'm i not sure, were we talking when I was thinking about starting a sock company slash empire we, we were not talking i've never heard this idea before so no we were not talking <laughs> when you were considering starting a sock company no so when would that have been it must have been like two years ago and i had all these ideas of things that i wanted to do that would be I, i'd read a lot of books uh like the little bits four hour work week the art of nonconformity, and been thinking a lot about different ways of setting up your life and lifestyle design and all this kind of stuff. And I had this idea that, oh my God, what I could do is make socks. <laughs> okay. Is there, is there a good margin on socks? <laughs> no, no, there isn't. <laughs> but I got really into, and this is why I have kind of a marketing brain. Like I think maybe while we weren't talking, I got really obsessed with marketing stuff. And so really into like, how do you use Pinterest, which I still don't actually really know, but <laughs> how to use all these resources to create products and businesses that work, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I had this idea for this kind of like, oh, I'm embarrassed now about this. It's <laughs> like <laughs> so, okay, you're talking to a guy who spent a full two and a half years of his life trying to put on live panel shows that no one ever came to. You cannot be embarrassed about that. Hey, People came to that sexy show. People came to your show and nothing else. And your show was the one that we didn't continue. Yeah, because we broke up. We were not doing that sexy show up until we broke up. I honestly can't remember. And I'm in Darwin and I'm hot. And my brain doesn't work, apparently. <laughs> so I had this idea for this there's Silicon Valley in <laughs> America. And then Melbourne, there must be some sort of, you know version is probably Brunswick Street, which is full of people with like cool social enterprise ideas. The best one is Who Gives a Crap. That is by far the best one. Yeah. So Who Gives a Crap is a toilet paper company, but they also now make tissues and they make yeah. paper towel. And it's run by Simon Griffiths, who's actually someone I've had a meeting with 
to talk about my social enterprise ideas uh, a few years ago. About your sock empire? No, it wasn't about this. It was about something else. <laughs> but he was great because he absolutely smashed me. Like, he was like, um, yeah, but so how is this effective exactly? And I won't go into what the idea was because I'm even more embarrassed about that idea. Oh, um, please. No. Please share it. No. Please. Uh, no, it's it's really bad. Oh, can I, okay. I'm going to guess and then you're going to tell us. Okay. Is it like a place where sad people can rent a kitten for an hour to hug? No, but that's a great idea. <laughs> so it's worse than that idea. Okay. Just wait. I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> Is it a place where people can get together and cry with no fear of judgment? Okay. So, so like when I did this, this was enough years ago that like radical softness trying to remove shame from emotionality was not my central task. What were you into then? Is it a place where people can pay to have sex with other people? I think that already exists. I assume that's why Simon Griffiths shut you down. Who's <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, you think you invented something here, but only while both people are crying? That was the limit. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a brothel for crying no, people no. and crying sex workers. <laughs> Although, like... Maybe that space, it would be good if that place existed. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's yeah, an idea I can maybe. see you bringing forward and him being like, do you think this would be effective? What was the idea? <laughs> so I'm just going to flag that right now I've got two ideas that I haven't properly explained. So this is one of my earlier ideas, which is I feel really embarrassed about this because A, I think it makes me look like the kind of person that I would absolutely rip to shreds now. And it makes me look like calculated or something. I don't know. Anyway, so I finished, I finished art school and I was really interested in kind of work or projects that were to do with complicated social stuff. And so there was this, oh my God, we actually went really far with this idea now that I think about it. <laughs> First of all, I explained the project that it was based off because it was absolutely so clearly a ripoff. Um, there's this guy, fuck, what's his name? I'll find his name and I'll link to the project in the show notes. But he's in America. I think he's in Pittsburgh. And this is really bad because I actually had a Skype meeting with him. Like, he was really lovely. He made this project called The Conflict Kitchen, which is, it's like a takeout joint in America that only serves cuisine from places that America is in direct conflict with. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you remember me talking about this? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So it had a rolling over menu. So like every three months it would change completely to be food from a different place. It was this interesting project where they'd also have all these cultural nights where they might have like a, I don't know, like a Cuban movie night or something. I actually can't remember what the countries were that America's in conflict with. <laughs> I was just like, Cuba, right? Or like an Af Afghani, Afghani's a good one, <laughs> an Afghani movie night. So it's kind of was using like food as this gateway into like cultural understanding. And it's really, really, it's a really cool project. So I was really fascinated with these kinds of projects that were sort of businesses, but also sort of about uh, changing, a of, yeah, of kind. changing cultural attitudes. Anyway, so I had this idea, which I'm now embarrassed about. Was that, oh, like, I really like that idea. How could you make it more, not more relevant, but like 
how would it exist in an Australian context? And I will like, oh, well, you could do a similar thing, but with a rolling of a menu of like cuisine from places where like a lot of Australia's migrant population, refugee population is from, which if it existed would actually, I mean, I could see a lot of news articles about that. It's the kind of, you know. I think his is better because it's more of a political statement. Yours is where do immigrants come from? Let's serve that food. But a lot of immigrants open restaurants. Like that, yeah, that I is know. a thing that really, really already exists. Oh, totally, totally. The idea I had is way crapper. <laughs> but we went so far as to like I bought a food truck. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I still You still have it? I still have it. Oh my god. <laughs> I thought it disappeared. It disappeared in that it went back to my folks' place. Wow. Because, yeah, I was with you at the time. And I remember you having all these ideas. And then one day we had a food truck in our backyard for like two and a half years. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> I got really excited. I managed to convince. I think that I did the convincing. Some of my siblings to get involved. And we won a competition. Or we did we win a competition? We we entered some sort of competition and we did really well in it. With this idea? Yeah, with this idea. And we met with Simon Griffiths from Who Gives a Crap. And we also met with Rebecca Scott, who's the, like, she's amazing, who runs Street. So Street is spelled S-T-R-E-A-T. I feel like I'm revealing this other thing about myself, which is that I used to be really involved in the like social enterprise community and like... Are you embarrassed about that? No, I'm not embarrassed about that. I just realized that I haven't really talked about it. Like I had a membership to this like hub where a lot of startups ran out of. So like where Possible runs out of and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. So we met with Simon Griffiths and he was like, okay, cool. Alrighty. Well, that's a nice idea. Can you tell me, like, how do you measure the effectiveness of that idea, of that project? Like, how do you know that you are doing good work? That is such a good question. And no one had asked us that question before. And in terms of an art context, right, which is where the original, like the Comfort Kitchen, right, there's no way of really measuring is this effective. And pretty much every artwork, all of my projects, there's no, you know, there isn't, it's so messy. There isn't a hit counter. Yeah, there isn't a hit counter, like, which is completely different to Who Gives a Crap, which we didn't really explain. It's a toilet paper company, but they give 50% of their profits to WaterAid, which is this organization that build toilets, among other things, in developing countries. So people have access to water and toilets and stuff like that. And they have a very clear way of assessing how effective they are. Like their marketing is fucking good. Their annual reports are fucking great because they're super accessible. I still have a subscription to Who Gives a Crap. They send me toilet paper every like three or four months. That was the thing about it that like, I was like, that's genius. They send you toilet paper. On a subscription. And you feel like you're giving the charity. Like everyone needs toilet paper. Everyone loves charity. Who wants to go to the store and buy toilet paper? Such a clever idea on so many levels. Well, Simon Griffith's thing is all about how do you make giving to charity really easy how do you make it really easy so easy that it's part of your normal life but b which he doesn't talk about but he does really well is how do you make it cool because there's this interesting thing that has happened in melbourne i'm not sure if it's happened in other parts of of australia but in melbourne if you are a venue that is anywhere near cool you will have who gives a crap toilet paper and it will be on on display 
Oh, really? Huh. Because the packaging for the toilet paper is really... It's really、um, pretty. <laughs> it's really pretty. So people often use the packaging for the toilet paper as gift wrap. And they collaborate with cool artists and illustrators to design new packaging. And then they come out with new packaging every so often. Or you can get limited edition packaging. Like they've made it a cool product. They've made toilet they've made paper cool. Toilet paper wrapping a limited edition product. Like、yes. that is so. Like, from a business point of view, that's incredible. I think it's amazing. <laughs> and so now, when you go places, like, if you go to someone's house, it's now sort of like having that toilet paper has like cultural cachet. You know, you go to someone's house and they have that toilet paper, and you're like, well, they're socially conscious. And you go to a cafe and you expect if it's a, like, a nice cafe, particularly on the, like, probably the north side, I don't know. I might be getting it wrong here that they will have that toilet paper and、yeah. that it will be on display so you can see it. That's incredible. The toilet paper is no longer hidden. It's now like <laughs> something to be proud of. It's prestige. Yeah, which is something that charities often don't do very well. Like, I've looked at research. I've looked at、the、research. Stuff like the,、um, the, the pink ribbons, they do it very well. Yeah. They're also a bit of a dodgy charity, from what I hear. Oh, I don't know. I really don't know anything about it. But one of the things that researchers into charity have found that one of the advantages that people get from giving to charity is a good feeling about themselves. And what I think is interesting is that because of the way Who Gives a Crap have done their thing, they've been able to absolutely capitalize on that by making a way that people can display. Their charitableness that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, I just think they've done a really great job. Giving to charity is a good thing to do and it makes you feel good. They've taken a way of making the it is a good thing to do and making that a, a, a badge of honor. Yes. And you get toilet paper out of it, which you need anyway. <laughs> yes, and you get it delivered to you. So good. Like, I would do that even without the charity side, and then they, they just keep turning it up. I feel like we should say this is not an ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've talked about getting advertisement on the show.、Uh, no, we just. <laughs> this is not an ad. <laughs> I'm very capitalist. Like, I'm, I'm genuinely like, into capitalism. I think it's a great system. And when an ad is really cool, I love that. I love a cool ad. Like, the, the classic example is the old spice ads. Yeah, yeah, I know those ads. They're just super cool. And I'm like, come watch this ad. Like, Uh, and I know people who are like, that's a bad thing, but I, I really love it. So, this is not us getting paid to do that. This is us just being enthusiastic about clever business products. Also, I'm, I'm interested in like how I really love that because it's a real culture change around toilet paper, toilet which paper. sounds kind of silly, <laughs> but I think it's really cool. So, Simon Griffiths, when I had this meeting with him, that was before Who Gives a Crap had launched. It was also before Shabin had launched, and Shabin was a bar in the CBD. And That's it, downtown, by the way. CBD is an Australian term I've learned. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, everyone else is downtown. It's actually recently closed. Downtown? Wow. No, Shabin, the bar. <laughs> Because they couldn't make, like, for whatever reason, they couldn't make it profitable. And it had a similar thing of like, you buy a beer and the money goes to specific charity sort of thing. And that was another thing of like making charity cool because they had like cool bands play there. It was a cool place to be. It was right in this, like, they did a good job of it, but they ran into some trouble. I've been to that bar. Oh, right. Before it closed down. Yeah. And I don't go to bars. So that was、uh, clearly a very cool bar. People were really pissed off because I think in the two or three years that they were running, they didn't. Really donate very much to charity.、Oh. But the thing is that that's 
what happens in the start of a social enterprise right, yeah. because like in the beginning you have to make you the thing profitable at all yeah. <laughs> before you can actually make it charitable and yeah. they ran into a lot of issues between i think the the venue was right next door to police and like their band room shared a wall with like the police sleeping area oh my God. and so i think that like there was a heap of really unexpected problems that were really expensive I don't know. That's just the idea. Anyway, so this guy who's created these great projects, I had a meeting with him and he was like, uh, so can you tell me how you will know that this project is good? And I was like, hmm, I don't <laughs> know. And that was like, fuck, like, what am I doing? And then, oh, yeah, I feel really embarrassed about this. Anyway, then we met with, I was young. I was young. Then we met with the woman behind Street, which is uh, another social enterprise that they do like cafes, often pop-up cafes, and they employ, I think it's young people who are experiencing homelessness or maybe a bunch of other issues. And then they wrap them up in a bunch of different services. So it might be about like, vocational training and then also getting into housing and all these different kind of things and they also give them a job working at street in the cafe and we had a meeting with her and I remember just what she was saying it made me realize how much work <laughs> that sounds oh, really silly but yes. how much work yeah those kinds of things are I mean you you were young and you'd just come out of art school yes so like it makes total sense to me that you wouldn't be like, okay, what are the actual logistics of running a business? But you're like, here's a cool art project. Let's try that. Like, Yeah. And I think at that stage, she had been working on street for like 10 years. Yeah. And that was incredible. And then talking about where she got funding from and all that kind of stuff. And then I think the one that really, really the clincher of like, fuck, I do not want to do that was... <laughs> She was talking about margins in hospitality. So uh, margins is like you want to kind of, oh, fuck, how do I explain that? So you want to have good margins of like, so if you buy something of the money, like 10% of it will go to this, 12% will go to this thing, like 30% goes to the price of the food. You know what I mean? Mar margins specifically is generally about profit. Yes. So uh, I'm going to talk about board games. Uh, Scuttle is a board game I made when on Kickstarter earlier this year. We sold it for nine bucks on Kickstarter. It's going to sell for nine ninety five in retail. It costs a dollar and eighty seven cents to print each copy of Scuttle, and so you might be like, "Oh wow!" So for every copy of Scuttle, you make seven bucks. Except we sell Jelly Bean Games. My company sells the game to distributors at fifty percent of retail. It costs us a dollar eighty seven. We sell it for four dollars fifty. And so we, we uh, I don't know what the difference is there, but it's like $2 something. And then that doesn't take into account... Um, All the other running costs, yeah. The running costs of a business, the fact that the designer gets a percentage of the game. I designed this game, so I gave my percentage to the artist. So the artist gets 5% of every sale. So 50 cents for every sale of Scuttle goes to the artist because the art's really gorgeous. And then stuff like running a business has costs like accountants and, and like websites. lawyers, especially, yeah, websites and... All that stuff, and then you want to you want enough money that if it sells out, you can afford to print a new a new run. Yes. So you know, if if I sell out my whole inventory, I need 
$10,000 or $20,000, however, it's going to cost to print out a whole new run to sell them. So every game that I sell ideally will pay for itself. And a printing of a new game. Printing of a new game and then enough left over to run a business. And that's the margin. The margin is, is that tiny, tiny percent. So some people really get off on that stuff. Some people don't. And at this time when I was having this conversation, we were talking about margins in hospitality. And I realized that I'd been working in hospitality a bit and I didn't give a fuck about hospitality. (laughs) I was like, no, 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 no. I do not want this to be my life for the next 10 years, (laughs) 20 years. (laughs) No, 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 no. So that made me go, fuck, I have already bought a food truck. (laughs) (laughs) And I've already met with all of these people. I've been letting you tell this story as if I'm hearing it for the first time. I was dating you through this entire process. Oh, were you? Yeah, from the moment, like, not the moment you came up with it. When I met you, you were already throwing ideas back and forth. But I was dating you when you bought the food truck, when you met with Simon Griffith, when you met with this other woman. I didn't know who any of them were, but I was dating you through this entire process. I'm letting you tell me as if it's new because the podcast listeners were dating you. And How do you know that? do Do you remember what my role was in your enterprise? I genuinely do not know. So you were, you were throwing around all these ideas and I would sit there and ask you questions like, do you want to do this? Are you sure? Or more specific questions like, okay, what will separate you from other food trucks? What are you going to do in terms of this? Like, I wasn't an expert by any means, but I, uh, you called it devil's advocating. Oh yeah. And you were really impressed that I could do that because none of your art friends had done that. And no one else in your life had been like, Hey, have you thought about this, 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 and this? And so at one point you brought me into a meeting that you and your brother and sister were having and like, Peter's going to be a devil's advocate. And I asked a bunch of questions similar to this and I can't remember exactly how it went, but I know that I was never invited back to another meeting. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Because I think they were like, who's this, who's this random guy that SJ's just started dating or like has been dating for a few months? It must have been after we were living together because your sister was an American when we started dating. And, and so, yeah, my role through this whole thing was, and I knew nothing about it either, but I was asking a lot of questions that no one else seemed to be asking and the answers were very hope and love and dreams and enthusiasm hope and love and dreams and then you came back from this meeting and the hope and love and dreams and enthusiasm had all kind of died yeah so i think the thing that i find most embarrassing about this stage of my life and then subsequently the sock stage of my life which <laughs> i'll probably explain but not in as much detail is that I saw all these things that were happening, like who gives a crap and street and scarf and possible and all this cool shit that was going on. And I really desperately wanted to be a part of it. And that's a really bad, it's not a great way to try and start a social enterprise. And particularly in terms of the kind of thing we were trying to do, it's actually offensive. Yeah. I can see. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I remember at one point I walked into. I went pretty far with it. I worked in a food truck to get experience around like what that would be like. I went and tried to volunteer at a refugee organization. They wouldn't let me. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is it because they're like, "Why do you want to work here?" And you're like, "So I can learn about it. So I can make money off it." Oh, that I was not thinking that there would be any money made. Because particularly because I had we had a Skype meeting with the guy who ran Conflict Kitchen, and he was like, "I've been doing this for X amount of years. I've made zero dollars. There's no money. There's no money in this." And 
So it wasn't actually about money for me, like, and this is awful. It was about like being a person who had done something, which is terrible, you know, like particularly in terms of the issues it's, we were it's trying It's not to... inherently bad to want to be a person who has done something. Yeah. Picking a controversial political topic. I mean, the thing is though, like I will cut a lot of slack for young people because young people don't know better because how like and i'm not saying that as like young people idiots i'm saying like how can you know no, anything yeah. until you have learned it yes and that that sounds dumb but like you don't know stuff until you've learned it so yeah that was super embarrassing but you're not a bad person for having done it i always think back to when i was in high school i did a, a theater thing called q fest which was a bunch of high schools got together and wrote a play and performed it every year they were overseen by a local university. It was part of the university curriculum for them to oversee this group of high schoolers and help them write and perform a play every year. And that's how I got into script writing. Like it was a huge thing for me. And I remember that there was one girl who I'm still friends with to this day, but every year her play that she did was basically an angry rant of some kind. Oh yeah. Because when you're young, there's injustice in the world and you know that you can fix it. Yes, yes, yes. Because yes. you are... You've been told, maybe more our generation than others. What they're lacking is just my enthusiasm. Um. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when someone is young or inexperienced or naive or whatever, I will cut them a lot of slack because of the incredibly stupid stuff I did when I was young. So do you mean like if I was trying to do the same thing at like 35, you'd cut me the same slack? Like is it actually to do would, with age? I would cut you a little bit less slack because I think at 35 you should have probably worked some of this shit out by now. Yeah. It's why when I see projects where people are trying to start, oh my God, oh, there's this project that I saw, I think last year and I really hated it. And it's like, what was it called? It's called Be Bangle. Oh fuck. I probably shouldn't rag on it so much, but um, they won a grant and I think they had a Kickstarter and won heaps of money. And it's like, they're making these stainless steel bangles that say like encouraging words on it for women I don't know why I hate this so much. <laughs> I remember you telling me about it. Uh, oh, did I tell you about it? Okay. <laughs> like when we first, first reconnected, it must have been when that was happening and you just ranted about it for an hour. <laughs> it was interesting. Like I, I enjoy passion, even if it's angry. And... <laughs> so it was this bangle and it would say something like, my body is a temple or like, I am a powerful human being or something. And you could kind of collect them. They're the kind of thing that I thought like you might see in like, cotton on which is a chain store in australia i think like a certain amount of the profits went to look this is awful i can't remember what they went to i just remember that in the video there was videos of black people looking like they you know like the, the kind of videos that are it's really exploitative yeah and it's difficult because at the same time you want to be like well they're doing a good thing it's like this is how I feel about the project. And I was like, yeah, I want to do this cool thing. But actually, I have so little knowledge and investment in the issue. It's, it's like, um, what is it when you, when you, volunteer tourism? Volunteerism, yeah. Volunteerism. When you are like, I want to go help a country. I'm going to go and stay there for three months and help build a hut and then go back to my life knowing I did good things. And to, to bring us back to the constant refrain of this podcast, shit's complicated. Maybe. Yes. For a while, I was freelancing as a director, and I directed the recording of a conference dedicated to doctors who are trying to make a difference in the world. Global Confest or something like that. Global Doctor 
good people fest. Checks out, legit. <laughs> and I remember listening to, because I had to film them, I listened to like six hours of lectures from guest people flown in from all over the world. And the thing that I really took away from it was they were like, hey, you are all doctors. Like people who are at this event are either doctors or people who are heavily invested in the medical community. You want to make a difference in the world? The single best thing you can do is not go to the third world country and volunteer your time for like six months or a year. It is to stay here, make as much money as you can, and then give as much of that as you can afford. Yes. <laughs> that is immeasurably better than actually going over there. But and, and people hear stuff like, you know, there's a shortage of doctors over there. Yeah, but having the money to pay doctors or to like create doctors who are there or pay people who are in the area is so much better than popping over for a couple of years and then disappearing again. Yeah, totally. Two things. One, there was one point in this project where I I went into a refugee organization to try and talk to the people there to sort of like get involved. And I was talking to them so about... So you could get involved? Or to get, so to that get I could involved. get involved. Okay. Yeah. And then probably also so that, you know, like so that I could get yeah, involved. Yeah. Build a community. Yeah. And they looked at me like such an idiot. I remember it so well. I remember the feeling of them being like, you're another one of those young, like middle class white people who wants to come in here and just like fix stuff. You know, like you don't understand this situation much at all. They weren't mean. They just looked at me like, who the fuck are you? And that was actually a really good wake up call of like, who am I? For me and how I feel about that project is like, I would actually, I would like to see that. I don't know if the energy involved in it is worth it for what would come out of it, if that makes sense. As in, just because the energy and man hours that could be put into that could be put into something else that might be way more beneficial. But I'm absolutely not the person to do that. Like, no, this, God no. I'm absolutely not that person. <laughs> On so many levels. <laughs> um, so that. And the other thing of what you're saying there is, I don't know if people who are listening will know of this concept called effective altruism. So... Actually, what does effective altruism? I'm just going to look up it. Sorry, I absolutely did not just look that up. I am very clever and already knew. Uh, effective altruism <laughs> is a. F- it's kind of like a philosophy and social movement that applies evidence and reason to determining the most effective ways to improve the world. Citation needed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what it says. That's what it says on Wikipedia. I know. I know. I, I, was, I was pretending you were reading it out and also saying citation needed, not realizing what that meant. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Daniel Day Lewis is one of the most renowned actors of our time. Citation needed, and he starred in. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter Singer is actually Peter Singer is a quite a famous Australian philosopher. He's written a book called The Most Good You Can Do, and. The common idea when people talk about effective altruism is that idea of like, actually, the most effective thing you can do is not dedicate all of your time to like working as a doctor in Africa, but is actually just earning heaps of money and donating it to the people who do the effective work. And I remember going to a talk with Peter Singer and I found that really confronting. It is because we, we want to do the thing that makes us feel good, not the thing that actually does good. And they talk about a guy, fuck, I can't remember his name, but I'll see if I can find him and link to him where he's made a, I think there's a couple of dudes who've made a pledge to donate half of their income for the rest of their life to charity. And then there's also a website, I'll see if I can find which one it is, which suggests what are the most effective places to put your money. And they suggest, I think there's a couple and they're mostly very 
to me, they're like really cut and dry stuff. You know, they're absolutely out of the realm of the kind of area that I work in. There's stuff like eradicating polio and malaria and stuff like that. Stuff that you really just need dollars to do. Yes. As opposed to stuff that involves massive social change. Yeah, which I find a really interesting concept because that then comes down to like this question of what makes a good life, which I am absolutely in a privileged position and it would be ridiculous of me to say that changing attitudes around, say, like mental illness is more important than curing malaria. That would be stupid. But I think what's interesting is like, this question of like it doesn't I don't know I find this struggle because I have to justify to myself why I'm doing what I'm doing well okay first of all the principle of that website is what is the most effective bang for your buck yes and it's gonna be stuff that is that because that is stuff where a dollar put towards malaria curing goes towards malaria curing maybe like 50 people or whatever I don't know I don't know the math but like one dollar is one fiftieth of a person being cured of malaria and which is that one step closer to wiping it out. It, it is on the top of that list, not because it's the best thing for the world, but because the most bang for your buck. Whereas $1 towards a campaign for mental health has a 2% chance of influencing 0.5% of the population by 10%. No, I think it's not even just that. It's that like we can't measure that shit. That's what I'm saying. That's why I said chance. Like there is a chance that you will make a slight difference in a small percent of the population versus you will definitely do this. So if you're, if you're purely after bang for your buck, that's the way to do it. I don't think the website's saying, therefore all money should go towards this, unless they're saying we should go down this list until like we've knocked out malaria, we've knocked out the next thing, we've knocked out the next thing, and then eventually get to it. I would be very surprised if that's the argument they're making. But when the question is, uh, who is the tallest person in the room? You point to the tallest person. You don't go, does tallness define a good person? Should we care? They're not exploring the question, they're answering the question. But there's still a lot of like interesting grayness in that kind of stuff when we look at like quality of life. So what do they call it? In in medicine they call it quals, quality of life years. Anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that was uh, I learned I learned that at, at Dr. Medicon. <laughs> Dr. Fancy Medicon <laughs> Save the World conference. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one. They like try and assess like actually what happens if you get cancer and how does that affect your quality of life and trying to really put formulas to these kinds of human experiences in terms of like what is the most effective in terms of giving people quality of life, which is super interesting because like in a bunch of ways, it's really messy. I was going to say, it's the Peters of the world doing this. Definitely not the SJs of the world. Yeah, it's definitely not me. The SJs of the world would look at the question and be like, is that a question we want to ask? <laughs> what does that mean? How does this work? Whereas I am like, that data is super interesting. Let's sit down and get a formula going. Oh, no, I think it's a, I think it's a necessary thing to do. I'm just like, well, how can we... You're just not how the right can person we to assess, do it. Like, <laughs> how much cancer affects your quality of life when so much about your quality of life is to do with like your perspective and blah 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 and maybe the answer you know like maybe the answer longitudinal studies (laughs) okay shut up (laughs) you're asking questions i'm answering them but like what happens in terms of effectiveness of quality of life if say we give someone acid when they have a terminal illness compared to when we like you know what i mean And I think this is a really interesting debate, particularly when you look at something like voluntary euthanasia, which we talked about a few episodes ago, 
And I think that's a really pointy subject for where these questions come out of like, what is quality of life? I agree, but that doesn't get us answers to the questions. And no, I think that they're I think that they're important questions. I'm happy that people are answering them. <laughs> okay, good, I'm not like good. no one answer these questions. Everyone just like <laughs> be okay with the lack of answers. I think it's really important, and I think it's going to be imperfect because it's messy. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be as good as we can do. And so, really, really, those surveys are asking the question: How are you going to measure this effectiveness? Yeah. Which is the question that got asked you and you were like, I don't know. But then I think it comes back to this question of how do I justify what I'm doing? Because if I'm like, I want to change something about the world. So for me, my justification is semi easier because when I saw this Peter Singer talk, he talked about this guy who was at Harvard and he was like, what should I do after I study here? What would be the best way of making the most good in the world? And he, after doing a bunch of, research into it, he realized that what he could do is go get a really high paying job, a really high paying job, and then give half of his money into charity. And that would be the most effective way for him to improve the world, which I think is interesting because also when you think about someone who's in a really high paying job, but then is actually earning half of what they, you know, is living in the space that is half of what their actual income is which is funny when you think about it in terms of a cultural situation because you're going to be hanging out with people, people who, who are earning people who are going to you're going to be hanging out with people who are earning twice as much as you all the time so i think that's a really interesting cultural phenomenon for those people and so for me that question is kind of easier because i'm like for me dedicating my life to trying to chase money in that way and work in those kinds of roles i think like i don't think i would survive that like i don't i just genuinely don't think that i could do that well it's the same with me like we, we spoke a few episodes ago like i need to create you know hope, hopefully i can turn that creative into high high pay job monies but there is a chance that uh that i never will but if i tried to pursue the money route i still need to create like that need doesn't go away i can't not create so for me, the question of what should I do with my life is create. That is the necessary starting point, And then I go from there. Do you justify it by, I, I feel like for us, then the justification becomes by like there not being another option. I feel like that's kind of, a, I feel like a douchebag saying that. So for me, the best, and this is going to tie in a second. For me, the best and most apparent example of the effective altruism thing is when dudes get into feminism because dudes get into feminism they're like okay i'm gonna to go to feminist rallies i'm gonna to go to feminist meetings and i'm gonna have my voice heard and i'm gonna start a feminist group and i'm gonna do all this stuff and feminists typically women feminists are like we don't need you to do those things thank you much like when you walk in and like i want to help refugees and they're like okay i'm sure you do calm down 21 year old i'm sure you've got lots of great ideas but we've been doing this for a while Exactly that, yes. And so we talked about this in a previous episode, but the quote that really blew my mind when I was in that exact headspace was, men don't go into feminist spaces and try to make a difference. Take the spaces you're in and try to make them more feminist. Which is for me like a perfect distillation of that effective altruism thing. It's, instead of uh, being like, I'm going to join all the feminist groups, I am going to rise as high as I can in my career and try to make that space more feminist. And that's going to be way more effective than me being like, I'm going to start a Facebook discussion group about feminism, you know? I have a lot of complicated feelings about this, actually. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question, which is like, 
For me, I think the best thing I can do is for the world is get into a position where I'm creating mass media that has socially positive messages. That sounds pretty good. Uh, so to talk about Jelly Bean Games again, like I have an art director and we've had conversations about the fact that unlike most games, our games are going to be at least 50% women. Or no, maybe not exactly 50%. We haven't crunched the numbers on some of the latest ones, but we are making sure to show women characters and non-white characters. Yeah. And we're making a concerted effort of that. And we're also, with the exception of me mentioning it here, which I don't think counts, we're not making a big deal out of it. When we launch a Kickstarter, we're not like, and guess what? We've put black people in. We just do it and try to treat it as normal and hope that that will have a positive influence. And we got a bunch of messages when Scuttle launched. Uh, Scuttle was, was done by a different artist who had the same kind of ethics. And we got a bunch of messages of people being like, hey, I can play this game with my daughter and not worry about the fact that there's only men. She doesn't see herself in it, yeah. Exactly. And and so that, for me, answers the question of, like, how can I do the most good? I can do that by following my obsession instead of trying to fight my obsession and turning the place that that gets me into the best place possible. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I sometimes think about that in terms of my work because I'm like, am I creating an echo chamber? Like, you know, like, how effective is this? And how do you open up people to new ideas when you're on the internet as well like so my chosen demographic for jellybean games is gamers and not all gamers but gamers were the origin of gamergate <laughs> yes yeah 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 and so by making good games that gets me in yeah that gets me through the door probably also by being a white male that doesn't hurt but being a white male who makes good games that'll get me in the door and once you're in the door it's way easier to make change than it is by trying to bash it in from the outside i think the other thing to remember in terms of social change and stuff like that is that like no no person is a silo like anyone who's successful is representative of a whole bunch of other people's labor and work so you Absolutely, you yeah. going in and making games in this way you're, you're, you're obviously not the only person doing that. You're one of a no, bunch no. of people <laughs> and all of you together, you know, will have an effect. It's how I think about when you think about people like, and I know Lena Dunham gets a lot of hate, but Lena Dunham and the work that she made, particularly when Girls First came out and it's looking at representation of the female body in mainstream media, all that kind of stuff. Like she was the person behind it. She was standing on the shoulders of like, decades of hard work by a lot of people and you know she happened to be the person who like was holding the flower if that makes sense the ferret one of my favorite bloggers just today put up an essay he's talking about martin luther king jr and he says that when he was a teenager he watched a documentary on martin luther king jr and he was really surprised when it opened with like a little summary of, of a half a dozen other people who had been talking about the exact same messages that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. And got hung for it. Oh, wow. Wow. Like, they got lynched and they got hanged for saying the exact same thing. And the reason that Martin Luther King Jr. succeeded was partially because, like, over generations, attitudes changed, but also because of television. <laughs> so he was absolutely building on generations of people trying to do what he was able to do. But by being able to broadcast his message... Instead of being stifled, that was one of the things that really, really made the difference. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much of it is contextual. That's why I think it's super weird when people who achieve that success don't kind of acknowledge 
Like, like. I don't think it's weird because you don't, even if at some level you're aware of it, it doesn't feel like that. And people don't treat you like that. And this is what we've yeah, talked about in terms of like the year that you, the year that you make it is the year that you stop growing because people stop questioning you. I can imagine, I don't think that I experienced this, but I think if you get to a certain level of fame, people treat you like a god. Yeah. And how, how are you supposed to acknowledge that you're, how are you supposed to acknowledge that you're not <laughs> if people won't treat you like that? So I have a question for you. Yes. What was the second project that you were really embarrassed about? Uh, now I'm more embarrassed about it. But we've given the context of like you were young and uh, so like when I, when I was a kid, I, when I was a teenager, I read Dave Gorman's books and Dave Gorman did this crazy things where he would like travel across the countryside and, and find 54 people who had his name. No, not across the countryside. He traveled all over the world finding all the people with the same name as him. A Google Wack adventure where he found out he was a Google Wack and then traveled all around the world finding other people who were Google Wacks and getting them to find more and so on and so forth. So a Google Wack... It's when you put in two words with no quotation marks and you get exactly one search result. His website was a Google Wack. So he did that and found other people who were Google Wacks, went to them and then got them to find Google Wack and was trying to make a chain. It's the best piece of live storytelling you will ever see. Dave Gorman's Google Wack adventure, it's all on YouTube. Amazing. So I was like, I'm going to do those things, much like you, but with less altruism like i wasn't like i want to i want to make the world better i was like i want to do cool weird things so i went and lived homeless for a month i put a, a plate of meat in my backyard for a month i remember that i spent a month living on 28 dollars worth of food like yeah you did embarrassing things because you were young and ambitious i don't think that there's anything shameful about that yeah yeah so what was it i think maybe i'm embarrassed because like now i can be so i can be so cynical about it and i was absolutely that person <laughs> but that's why you can be so cynical about it yeah in the same way as as you can only give really good relationship advice once you've totally fucked up some relationships yes absolutely it's why I, my sister and i were talking about our parents have only been in one relationship and that's with each other and so we remember the first time It'd be that weird if it wasn't. <laughs> we, we remember the first time that either of us had a breakup and they were completely <laughs> useless. So like, oh, I've never. They're like, why don't why don't you just get married to them and have four kids? That seems to be the solution. <laughs> I've never experienced this before. So the second project was, uh, okay, I'm just gonna say it really quickly because I feel uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I was interested in making like socks in the same way that who gives a crap made toilet paper cool making I know socks are already cool but like more of a designer item and so doing this project where um you work with cool female artists they will do a design for a pair of socks you make a pair of socks every month different artists and you can get them on like a subscription based thing but they're more like they're sort of halfway between like, you know, like a pair of socks and like an artwork was sort of the idea. But then like half the funds would go to shit. Um, fuck, this is terrible. I can't even remember the charity, but it was, it's like one of the best woman centered charity organizations to try and help with women's issues. That was the idea. What happened to it? I just never did it. So I found a bunch of other people that were doing stuff. So there's this other company called Odd Pears. So pears as in how you spell pear, like the fruit. And that company is basically basically exactly the thing that I would want to make, except that they don't donate to charity. 
and there's not like a focus on women's art and creativity kind of thing and I just realized that that wasn't my thing but anyway the reason why I started telling this story is actually because when I look at the stuff that I do and the amount of work involved and I look at those projects that I wanted to do and then I didn't I'm so fucking glad I didn't do it because (laughs) working really hard on something that you're like I just feel really grateful that the work that I do is actually on being authentic like it's not a diversion from the stuff that I genuinely want to do like none of it is a diversion and I feel like so incredibly grateful and I also feel really proud of myself because there was there was so many points and this is all of the obsessions with like finding out manufacturers for sock companies and staying up till four in the morning researching you know like I put a lot of effort into trying to think of stuff that would work but wasn't like completely on point with what I wanted to do. I was just trying to like make something of myself and make something. Rather than finding out what what you actually wanted to make. You were trying to make anything instead of trying to make something. I was trying to make something that would be valuable rather than genuinely the thing that I I could make that would be valuable, if that makes sense. I think what's really difficult about that is, or at least what I found really difficult, is it's really difficult to believe in your stuff enough you know because if I can look around and be like oh Simon Griffiths has done this thing and the conflict kitchen is a thing that happens I could do a thing like that the things that are really big or good or whatever are the things that are different to everything that's come before they'll build on it but they're still a different thing and that is much harder to be like no I know this is going to work because you don't there's no way of knowing So that is all for this week. The second half of this conversation, less embarrassing for me, but potentially more embarrassing for Peter. Not really. It gets more into depth about the reality of how difficult it is to follow what you decide is your path, even when you know what that may be. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.